Today is the last Sunday of Eastertide. We are on the, it marks the 40th day. Next week we'll celebrate Pentecost Sunday as uh, we've been looking at through the book of Acts, the story of the church. The outpouring of the Spirit becomes the birth of this new community that we get to uh, receive and live out here even 2,000 years later. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, but also just wanted to let you know uh, most of you, uh, if not all of you, probably got um, an email on Thursday, and then Friday also alluded to how on Wednesday we signed our lease for a new, not a new building, but a building across the street that would really function as all our non-Sunday activities. So whether it's youth, youth group over there in the new space, multi-purpose room, education, our second Saturdays, our Easter brunches. Uh, life outside of Sunday mornings will really be happening across the street. And it'll be a beautiful space of about 5,000 square feet. You'll learn more about it uh, in the coming weeks. But also with that, uh, we'll be looking at a pledge campaign to be able to better understand where people are giving. And you'll hear more about that as well in the weeks to come. And probably really punctuated at our annual congregation meeting on June 25th or so, the last Sunday of June. And so please try to make it out there. You'll hear more about that as well. Um, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, you can. we have Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. And there you could turn to page 914, but we'll also have it projected on the screen for you. Um, but I'm going to invite Steve Wolf to come on up. And he's going to give the reading. He's going to begin in verse 1 through 8 of chapter 6, but then jump to 54. And we're going to skip Stephen's sermon. It's the longest sermon in the book. Uh, it says defense of the gospel. Um, but we'll skip that and I'll, I'll summarize it for us in this homily this morning. But then he'll jump to 54 and see what the consequences of his sermon leads to. And actually, ultimately, the church. So let's give attention to God's word as Steve, who's also one of our CG leaders, and plays the, plays the electric every now and then, uh, reads the scriptures for us this morning. Thanks be to God. This is the reason we uh, named our oldest son Stephen. And he always goes, why did you name me after someone who was killed? <laughs> So pay attention. I can't find him anymore. He was sitting right here. But anyway, uh, let's, let's pray as we ask the Lord for his help. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now as we look at this passage um, in the midst of what is dire and disastrous. Lord, you still use the church and use these storms to continue to bring out the gospel. So Lord, work in our hearts and help us to believe these things that only your spirit can do in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago on This American Life, the host, Ira Glass, he talked about the things that happen that are disastrous and in those moments, the thoughts that go on in our heads. Now, he shared about how he was, had multiple accounts where he would ride his bike and on rainy days, as he would fall, he shared about all these different thoughts that went through his mind as this, this disaster occurred. Now, this happened to me last week. Not a bike accident, but actually, sadly to say, a golf cart accident. 
on a very rainy day on last Thursday. It was pouring that morning, and my friends and I were golfing at Peevely on a Thursday morning on my day off. Don't worry, not when I was working. But on my day off, I was working and, or not working, and we were at Peevely. And long story short, there was this really steep hill, and we just lost it. And our golf cart tipped over. I was spared with just a bad back, um, but my friend was not. He broke his elbow. He got a concussion and needed stitches in his forehead because he split that open. And he got up and he said, am I okay? Am I okay? And I just saw blood gush. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> but why I share this is because when we were sliding down that steep hill and lost control of our cart, so many thoughts went through my head. I thought, though it might sound silly, I was going to die in a golf cart accident. And I, and I wonder, with a funny story like that, there are moments that are dire and disastrous in the church, right? And when we think about those that are deconstructing their faith, friends of ours, families of ours, we think about the abuse of the church, we think about some of the social issues and political issues that have divided the church. And when we are faced or confronted with these dire situations and disastrous situations, what goes on in our heads? What goes on in our minds and our hearts? Often I hear the church is doomed. We have lost the church. The church is going down here in the Western culture. And now that might be true, but there's a lot of things that we think about when we think about the church in a dire situation. And here this morning, as we just read this passage, we see two disastrous situations. One that is internal and one that's external. And with the birth of this church that we've been looking at, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that God promised we saw amazing things happen, right? We saw amazing things happen. Healing, fellowship, a new community, generosity that we looked at last week. And the church was growing in number. Some say 20,000. Others will say more conserv conservatively, maybe 8,000. But nonetheless, a church of only, or, or a group of 120 followers of Jesus blew, grew exponentially and increased to thousands upon thousands of people. And it's in that moment we see these two disasters. And that's what I want us to look at and see what can we learn from these situations. First, let's look at this internal disaster. We see that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And it's set in the context of what we've been reading along in the books of Acts, in the story of the church. The disciples were increasing in number. And it's during this growth, as disciples are increasing numerically and also internally, that people are maturing in Christ, we see internal conflict occur. And what happens? Well, these Hellenists, widows, or these Hellenists, bring a complaint to the apostles, to the disciples. And what is their complaint? The Hebrew widows are being cared for but the Hellenist widows are not. Now we have to give some context here. What does that mean? Hebrew widows 
were those that lived in Jerusalem as Jewish people all their life. So they spoke Aramaic. They dressed like other Jews in Jerusalem. But Hellenist widows had preferred to live in other countries because of the diaspora. When, when Israel was exiled from their land, they all were scattered throughout other countries. And what happens? They decide to just make, the, make those places their home. And so what did they speak? They spoke Greek. That was a common language for the marketplace and through trade. And so they spoke a different language. They adopted a different culture. But they were still Jewish. And they made their way back to Jerusalem to spend the rest of their life or the rest of their time until their death back in their country. And so what is going on? We're seeing the worst of the worst on display. What you see is a reek, reeking of favoritism, bias, and ethnocentricity. You're seeing a people give the distribution of food to only the Hebrew widows, but not to the Hellenist widows. This was a huge threat to this new family of God, this new fellowship, this new community. There was not care and love and mercy and generosity being shown to the vulnerable that looks different from them. The family of God was being divided because of hostility and hate and biases for another group of people, even though they were in the same family of God. And I think it's good for us to pause in this moment and ask ourselves, where do we lack favor and generosity to those that are vulnerable around us because of our own biases? Because they don't look like us. Because they don't have the same kind of income like us. And I'm talking about the family of God. Where we show favoritism. Do we see that happening even in our own church family, in this new community? And so the Hellenists make this complaint. And what do the apostles do? What, how do they respond? Well, we see that in verse 2. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so what do they do? They tell them to choose. They delegate their own church to choose seven men who will help and serve and provide mercy, not only to those that are widows, but to all that are vulnerable, to help and assist the church because the apostles felt the need and importance to continue to preach the gospel. And what were the qualifications of these seven men, these deacons? They had to be in verse 3, good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. And what's fascinating is that these Deacons, these seven men were all Hellenists. Think about that. These are all Greek names. And what the apostles do is in their wisdom and in their beauty of seeing the vulnerable being exposed and not cared for, they choose seven of those from their camp, from their rank, who are being hated on not treated fairly, and they put them in a place of authority to serve and to care and to show mercy. And this is what we try to do at our church as well. 
from this model, what we see is we have these two offices, elders who shepherd and teach and rule. And we have deacons who serve, who provide mercy and care. And it's not like one is less or more important than the other, no. What you see these apostles do is they give their authority away. Do you see that? They give their authority away so that these seven can care for those that are in need. And we have to be able to see Jesus did the same exact thing, didn't he? Jesus wasn't only just the good shepherd, but he was also one who came to not be deaconed, not to be served, but what? To serve, to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is what they do. They serve. And that is the beauty of this church. In the midst of an internal threat, a house divided, what? Cannot stand. And yet here, we see through wisdom and strength and grace, the church continues to flourish. In verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that beautiful? In the midst of this internal conflict that could have destroyed the church, God uses it to bring about beauty and continue to grow the church. Think about our church for a moment. I don't think it's a coincidence that as I preach a sermon on deacons being appointed to serve the widows, only three weeks ago, we had Yoshi become a widow when her husband Mike passed away. And as you think about even our deaconesses, Chris and Dana, that get installed only a month ago or so. We see these things coming together. And what does it look like for us to care for those who are vulnerable within our own church? Yoshi, who's not only a widow, but also has special needs. What does it look like for us to actually do the work that God has called us to do? And that's what I've asked the deacons to do, to, to provide a structure. And we have a care calendar. What does it look like for us to serve and to provide not only food, the distribution of food, but to provide hospitality, friendship, love, prayer, to meet with her in her home because she is, she is there more often than not. What does it look like for us to care for those in our own home? This is what the church looks like in the midst of internal disaster and opposition and threat from within, the word of God increases. It's beautiful. But the second thing we see is not only this internal disaster, but this external disaster. Now, one of these seven that was appointed was Stephen. And he was a man full of wisdom and faith. And it also goes on later in verse 8 to say he, is, he was full of grace and power as well. And he had the ability to teach and preach and engage people in a way where people were jealous of him. So much so that these people began to plot how they might actually bring about his ruin. And so what's the best way to do that? You bring false charges. And these two false charges were one of the temple and the Torah. Those were the exact same charges that the Sanhedrin brought to who? To Jesus. 
Jesus was brought up on these two same charges, the temple and the Torah. And Stephen has to give a defense, and we won't go into that. And I really actually encourage you to read that chapter, chapter 7, of Stephen's defense, because it is absolutely masterful. This Sanhedrin, this Jewish council in Jerusalem, do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. So do you know what Stephen does? He doesn't talk about Jesus. He only brings Jesus right at the end, but rather he uses the Old Testament, what they believe in. And he uses the Old Testament to show them that God did not dwell in a temple. He dwelt all over. Where did Jesus, where did God meet Moses? Where did God meet Abraham? And he uses the Old Testament to show them that their charges were false about the Torah. He uses the Old Testament and says, you guys failed and failed over and over again to keep the law. And God kept sending more people your way. Prophets, priests, kings. And you kept rejecting them. And at the end of his defense, what does he do? He says, and you also betrayed Jesus, the Messiah, and you murdered him. <laughs> now that's, that ain't good, right? I mean, that, that will offend and that got them angry, so angry that the way Luke describes it is they, he says they grinded their teeth. You know, the grinding of the teeth, the gnashing of the teeth. And so they drag him out into the city. And what do they do? They bear their clothes off because they're about to kill somebody. And they lay it at Saul's feet, who we're going to learn a lot about, the one who's the pillar of the early church. They lay it at his feet as he watches and gives approval for the stoning of Stephen. And as Stephen is pelted and pelted with stones and killed, what does Stephen say? Just like his Savior, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful in the moment of his death. Falsely accused. And dying, he says, forgive them. What began with the persecution of Jesus, then the persecution of the apostles, then the persecution of a deacon named Stephen. What happens next? They begin to persecute the church. Luke at verse 1 of chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, the one who approved of this stoning, was ravaging the church. Ravaging was a, actually a word to talk about lions and animals that would destroy and kill their prey. Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You see this external disaster unfold right before our eyes. The church is being persecuted now. And what happens? They all scatter. This new community, this new fellowship, this church, Ecclesia, is now no more. 
The persecution has tore this new church apart and they scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. But what is an absolute disaster that could end the church becomes the propulsion for the church to continue to grow. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples as he ascended on Ascension Sunday today? He said, you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And what do you see here? Where do they scatter? To Judea and Samaria. In the midst of absolute death, persecution, suffering, hardship, God uses that to propel, to, to, to explode the church out into the Gentile nations, out into the other countries, so that what? Men, women, and children who are being persecuted continue to hold the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done to tell them and share. And this, this gospel story that they've never heard before, they begin to believe, and the church continues to grow and grow. Brothers and sisters, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. The way of the church is the way of the cross. It's the only way. The only way we ever find glory, <laughs> the only ever way we ever find resurrection is through the cross. It's through suffering, through grief, through death. That is the way the gospel and the church and the cross has always worked. It is through near disaster that the church continues to grow. God's ways are not hindered. God's ways can never be thwarted, even with a disaster like this. Tim Keller, as John shared about him, said this, We want the storylines of our lives to go from strength to strength, success to success, and then happily ever after. But throughout the Bible, we see something completely different, a persistent narrative pattern of life through death, triumph, through weakness. That's always the way it work, works. Tim Keller, in his obituary that our denomination magazine or journal wrote about on Friday, said this about his church. Redeemer started small, with only around 50 members at first, but under Keller's leadership, the little church began to grow. By the dawn of the new millennium, nearly 3,000 people attended Redeemer's Sunday service. After September 11th terror attacks, some 5,400 reeling Manhattanites poured through the church's doors searching for meaning, comfort, and hope. Trauma and tragedy fueled a growth spurt, and numbers of new converts soared. A disaster like 9-11. Trauma and tragedy that we think would kill and destroy a church fueled the growth of the church. Why? Because of the gospel. Because of this good news of Jesus. And that's true of you and me as well. Even on your worst day, God's plans can never be thwarted. God's plans can never be thwarted. No divorce, death, bad grades, not getting into a college you wanted to, 
or a job that you were turned down from means the death of you or the loss of hope. Even sin or failure can stop from God accomplishing his work in you. Believe that. Because whether it's the church in the midst of dire situations of disaster or your own life, God's will and God's plan for you will never, ever be thwarted. As I close, I want to just share a story that I heard about from a missionary. His name was Del Tar, and he served, in, served for 14 years in West Africa. And he shares about the people that he lived with for so many years. And I'll just read you his story or his diary or journal that he wrote. I went to Sahel, a vast stretch of savanna more than 4,000 miles wide just under the Sahara Desert. In the Sahel, all the moisture and all the rain comes in a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. The ground cracks from dryness, and so do your hands and your feet. The winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air. It then comes slowly drifting across West Africa as a fine grit. It gets into your mouth, it gets into your watch, and stops it. The year's food, of course, must be all grown in those four months. So guess what October and November look like? Those are beautiful months. The storerooms are full, the harvest has come, people sing and dance, they eat two meals a day. December comes, and the barns start to recede. Many families skip morning meals. Certainly by January, no one is still eating two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes. The meals shrink even more during March, and children succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. April, the month before the rain comes, is a month that haunts my memory. In it, you hear the babies crying in the twilight. Most of the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then inevitably it happens. A young boy, six or seven, comes running to his father and then says in excitement, Daddy, Daddy, we've got grain. And the father says, Son, you, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall. I reach up and put my hand down in there, Daddy, and there's grain in there. Give it to Mommy so we can make flour, and tonight our tummies can sleep. The father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. The rains finally arrive in May, and when they do, the young boy watches as his father takes the sack from the wall and does the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes to the field, and with tears streaming down his face, he takes the precious seed and throws it away. He scatters it in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything with it he wants. The act of sowing, it hurts so much that he cries. Don't expect to rejoice later unless you have been willing to sow in tears. This is the way the gospel works. From death and hardship and persecution, trials, conflicts, sorrow and grief, 
the seeds are scattered and a harvest is grown and it's true of the church and it's true of our lives. He sees you. He loves you. And he will continue to move the gospel forward through this church and through your lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unending commitment to see people renewed, to see healing happen, to see people come to believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And whether it's through joy and laughter or it's through sorrow and seeds being scattered and famines happening, or even in our own city where gunshots being heard every single day. Lord, we pray that we would not believe the lies of the evil one, but that we would believe that your plans and your ways can never be thwarted. So help us to have strength and courage, and even as we come to the table now, strengthen us. Help us to believe. Give us the courage so that in the midst of disaster and dire situations, we might be able to go and be the way of the cross, that through suffering and death may we experience the glory that is to come, whether it's here on earth or when you come back. Help us to persevere. Help us to believe. Help us to carry one another, whatever that may take. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.